Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about The Man on the £10 Note. I'm joined by Andrew Wilson, A.N. Wilson, the historian, novelist and journalist. Who's For, latest former literary editor. Of former literary editor, one of my predecessors. <laughs> one of your less glorious predecessors. And his new book is called Charles Darwin, Victorian Mythmaker. It's a biography of Charles Darwin. And it starts with the three words, Darwin was wrong, which even by your own high standards, Andrew, seems pretty flamboyant. Why do you start by saying that? I start by saying that because I think it's true. And I think it's important when you're writing a book of this kind to get all that stuff out of the way to start with. Obviously, he wasn't wrong about everything. But I think the truths that he thought he'd discovered were demonstrably untrue. Uh, the two central ones, which we'll probably talk about in a moment. And I think that he's now spoken about, hence him being on the £10 note rather than a lot of other Victorian scientists we could have chosen, he's now spoken about as a sort of infallible guide, not merely to science, but to life itself. He seems to be the man who thought he'd discovered the life mystery. And I don't think there is an answer to life's mystery. I wrote this book out of a sense of belligerent agnosticism, if you can have such a thing. (laughs) I I felt that the claims made for Darwin in some quarters were ludicrous and childish. Well, did you, when you set out writing the biography and looking into Darwin, you know, you're not a scientist by background. No. Did you think that those were the three words with which we were going to start the book? Of course not, no. I mean, I'd always had it at the back of my mind for about 20 years that I would write about Darwin, partly because I'm interested in the family. I wrote a novel about the Wedgwood family. His, His grandfather was Josiah Wedgwood. Partly because I'm interested in the kind of intellectual scene in the 19th century. I wrote a book about them all losing their religious faith, or not all of them, but a great many of the intellectuals, which was called God's Funeral, after the Thomas Hardy poem. It just seemed natural that one would one day try to tackle this great giant. And I'd always assumed, since I was a schoolboy and read Julian Huxley's Penguins about Darwinism, that it was more or less irrefutable. And I thought the only people who didn't believe in Darwin were basically Bible bashers, the sort of evangelical wing of Christianity, with a few Roman Catholics thrown in. One of the things, I mean, the sort of ladybird history version of it, I think, that a lot of people have kind of internalised, is the idea that there was this situation in which, up until the origin of the species, everybody believed in God, mostly in the form of the Anglican Church, nobody believed in evolution, and then the origin of the species came along and... Suddenly, nobody believed in God and everybody believed in evolution. Um. <laughs> that is more or less the Ladybird version. And it's certainly not this. I think you're making it more religious than I would. But it's sort of the version I had in the back of my mind when I began my researches for this book. I think I knew, having written that book called God's Funeral, that actually Darwin wasn't really the figure who undermined religious faith for the Victorians. So Charles Lyell, who always remained a kind of deist, he was much more destructive of faith because he wrote the books about geology, which became Lyle's geology, much earlier in the century. And he, was, he was Darwin's mentor and hero, really. And he showed that if you took the Bible absolutely literally, and I don't quite know what one means now by saying one takes the Bible literally, but if you, if you take Archbishop Usher's dating of the biblical events, Archbishop Usher was a 17th century archbishop in Ireland, And after him, they took to printing the actual dates of such things as the fall of man, which I think took place in 4004 BC, at the top of the page in the Bible, which was, in the whole 2000-year history of Christianity, was, of course, a relatively recent. Well, that was a 
peculiar thing in, in your book, which surprised me, that sort of biblical literalism seems to have been a kind of post-Reformation thing. Very much a post-Reformation thing, because they, the, the way that Protestants regarded the book was that the, the book provides information which is either true or false. We all know that's not true of any book, of course, but this very kind of binary approach to truth was forced upon certain types of Bible Protestant, and it was inf- reinforced by Archbishop Usher dating the creation. This was the crucial thing, dating the creation to about 6,000 years ago. There are still, amazingly, um, people in the United States of America, and probably some here, who believe that the world is only 6,000 years. But it's not really possible, intellectually speaking, to sustain that view. Because of all we know, starting with, in this country, Lyle, though in, in Europe, great many other figures, all we know about paleontology and fossils and so forth. We know that it was millions of years old, that the rock formations of the earth and the, the movements of mountains and so on, and oceans, is infinitely older than 6,000 years old. So it's just a silly belief, really, that Archbishop Usher foisted on the world. Most intellectual people, and certainly most scientists, had given up that belief if they ever had it, even before Lyle. Darwin's grandfather, for example, Erasmus Darwin, who as far as this country was concerned, was really one of the pioneers of evolutionary theory. Uh, he never believed Archbishop Usher's dating of geology. That's what was striking, that there were people talking about evolution, including Darwin's own grandfather, you know, much before the Origin of Species came out. We had um, miles and before. And people like that. I mean, uh, yes, certainly. And uh, if you think about the situation in Europe, Goethe, the great sort of polymath, poet, scientist, politician in, in Germany conceived this idea that all life derives from a single source and that it evolves somehow. We don't know how. In, in France, figures like Cuvier had developed this in a much more systematic way through paleontology and the study of, of old bones and the, the gradual discovery that these strange prehistoric monsters walked the earth and then became extinct. The, the book, I mean, when you're talking about the book which shook the Victorian faith, the one that really did it was not Lyle, but a, a popularisation of both Lyle and then all the stuff we, at that point, knew about astronomy and lots of other things. It was called The Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation. It was published brilliantly by a very clever publisher, a stroke journalist, stroke popularizer, in Edinburgh, called Chambers. It's the same family that produced the Chambers Encyclopedia. And he had this wonderful idea that if he published it anonymously, and he sent 200 copies to the most influential people in the land. Everybody would start gossiping about it, which is indeed what happened. Darwin himself came out in 1844, which is 15 years before Darwin's book, was horrified because here was a man who was popularising the idea of evolution and many of the things which Darwin had by then persuaded himself that he alone had discovered. Yes, I mean, there's that aspect of it that he not only persuaded himself despite the fact his grandfather was one of the pioneers of this thing. And I think you somewhere say that he said that his, his grandfather's zoonomia made very little impression on him, though obviously it I must mean, have. It's extraordinary he makes that claim. When he went to Edinburgh University as a medical student with his brother, as a, as a teenager really, he encountered a lot of evolutionary scientists. That's where the evolutionary science was really getting going in this country. It was in Edinburgh. And in particular, a man called Grant, who lectured on the origin of species, told Darwin how important Erasmus, his grandfather, had been and as they paced about Edinburgh looking for specimens and looking at uh, marine life forms 
Darwin became aware of how important his grandfather was. And one of the extraordinary things about Darwin's character is that he absorbed other people's ideas and then either conveniently forgot where he got them from or deliberately suppressed, which I'm afraid in one case, a very notorious case, he obviously did deliberately suppress the truth about how he derived his ideas from somebody else. Darwin's character in your book does, I mean, you know, fairly early on you say, more or less say, particularly looking at his autobiography, that he has a character who's, you know, enormously self-absorbed, more or less a pathological liar. And yes, yes. sort of boundlessly ambitious. I mean, that being a great man, which his, he obviously succeeded in doing. <laughs> that, <laughs> there he is on the £10 note. Exactly. Whereas Owen, for example, who started the Natural History Museum and in many ways was a more impressive figure, has been totally forgotten except by historians of the 19th century. No, it's true. I mean, Darwin was two things. He was, on the one hand, a very, very great naturalist. And if you read his history of the barnacle, for example, I mean, he knew more about barnacles than anybody. Um, <laughs> Is he sort of saying if only he stuck to barnacles and earthworms? And he wrote a wonderful book about earthworms. And he wrote an, a very, very absorbing book about the expression of emotion in animals, which anybody who's ever lived with an animal, particularly if you've lived with dogs, which Darwin loved to do, the expression on their faces and the way that they express emotion uh, and the way in which their facial and other bodily um, expressions are comparable with our own are absolutely fascinating. And he was such an obs observant man. Also, he had the time, be being a very rich man, to collect, to observe, to see the whole story of natural history, from geology to ornithology. He was a tremendous expert on pigeons, for example. I mean, all that side was was wonderful. On the other side... It wasn't going to get him on the £10 note, though, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wouldn't get him on the £10 note. Yeah. No, the man who wrote about barnacles. His hero was Alexander Humboldt, the great German polymath, scientist, traveller. And when Darwin went on the Beagle as a very young man, sailing around the world, and principally in South America, Humboldt and his travels in South America and all the things he discovered, that became Darwin's Bible, really. And... Darwin was determined to be the English Humboldt, not just a man who was a good traveller and a good scientist, but somebody who'd cracked the secret of life itself. He wanted to be Mr Big in, the t in terms of philosophy as well as science. In his youth, they didn't distinguish between the two, of course. And his nickname on the, on the boat with the sailors was Philo Philos or Philo, because, because they called scientists philosophers in those days. One of your, I think, very interesting lines in the book is to say the reason that the sort of Darwinian idea or, you know, ascribed to him has caught on is actually because it's so simple. Yes. You know, that this idea, absolutely categorically, that it's... Nat I mean, there's sort of two things, of natural selection by competition, which sort of writes altruism out of the picture, and the idea that it's always gradual, which yes. has been challenged by some of the fossil records. I mean, what... Those are really the two strands which make Darwin distinctive that nature never makes leaps, that everything that exists has come about through a process of gradual adaptation and mutation. Well, this is the old dust-up between Stephen Jay Gould and Daniel Dennett in the it 90s, certainly isn't is. it? About? It is, exactly. Because the paleontologists, Stephen Jay Gould above all, and Eldridge, his colleague in New York, they memorably said that the total absence of evidence for this Darwinian gradualism is the trade secret of paleontology. <laughs> What you see, if you, if you look at one of these marvellous charts or actual arrangement of skeletons in a history, natural history museum, is leaps. You don't see gradualism. 
So that's one. Has anybody successfully accounted for the leaps? I don't think they have. Gould called it punctuated equilibrium. He, w- he was a, a sort of Darwinian. The, the point about... I just want to answer what you, was, you said because I wasn't really answering it properly. The point about thinking that you can explain everything, uh, which I earlier in the conversation said I think is a very childish idea, that is really, I think, as you rightly said, the key, the explanation for why Darwin became such a colossal figure in many people's minds. If you read the preface to Shaw's Back to Methuselah, which is a wonderful piece of prose, he describes what it was like to be a man of his generation, suddenly realising you didn't need to have a god to explain the way things were. I mean, I don't think you need to have a god to explain things the way things are anyway, but... um, I mean, that's up to you whether you have a god. But, and this book, incidentally, has nothing to do with religious opinions, either mine or anybody else's. It's to do with scientific fact and how Darwin used science as a kind of allegory for the way that life existed in that very, very competitive, nasty 19th century world. And that had implications, as you write quite directly, for the sort of moral order of the... Well, let's get on to that, but I just just want to emphasise this simplicity point first, that Shaw, uh, who was a sort of classic Darwinian, said that the the thing which made him and everybody else fall in love with the Darwinian idea was that it was simple. And once you'd thought about it, you didn't need to know all the biology. You believed that there were some clever uh, biologists back there, more or less explaining the existence of everything. Darwin himself was never quite like that. In the Origin of Species, particularly the many revisions he made of it, he was very honest and said that complex life forms, such as the eye, which is the the old chestnut people are always bringing up, are very, very difficult to explain by by the process of gradualism. Can I just say something about that in brackets, the eye? I mean, Richard Dawkins is probably the most vociferous representative of Darwin on Earth at the moment in the sort of hard-line, old-fashioned Darwinism. Although he... Admits, doesn't he, that... Oh, he admits that all the details... Darwin wouldn't have recognised, actually, <laughs> exactly. his no, account does, of Darwin. He does, yeah. Yeah, all the details are wrong. But nonetheless, he still clings to Darwin. There's a reason for that, and that, of course, is that if they clung to the man who thought up genetics, they'd be embarrassed to discover that the, the hero of modern genetic science was a Roman Catholic monk, <laughs> 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 which people like Dawkins just hardly... Uh, so they've got to find a Victorian atheist, basically, as their hero and figure. But Dawkins draws our attention in one of his books to an experiment that two young Scandinavian scientists did, which was to explain how, for example, the fish get their eyes. And he pointed out that far from it being a gradual process, if you're a haddock or a bream or something, you could get your eye in a matter of about 500,000 years, i.e. much quicker than the early generation of Darwinians thought, which, as, as Dawkins says, compared with the length of time it takes for rocks to evolve or other natural forms, it was actually very speedy. But it's all right if you're sitting in Oxford to think that half a million years is a relatively short time. But if you're a haddock <laughs> with a life... I've spent for about a year. It's not going to be much use to you just to be able to dimly see a little bit if there are sharks coming down to the bottom of the ocean to eat you. And, of course, there's no need. I mean, this is what's so silly about the Darwinian idea of gradualism, I think, and the refusal by neo-Darwinians to accept the dual demonstrations that nature does make leaps. There's no need any longer to have an explanation at all of how we get eyes, for example, because the science of genetics shows that there are little parcels, which we call genes. There's one called Pax 6 I think it's called, which, when it's put into 
Sam Leith, it creates the human eye. When it's put into a fruit bat, it will tr create the, uh, I'm using the word create uh, metaphorically, the multi-lensed eye of the fruit bat. And that's all that you need, need in, in way, I would have thought. In the, the same of, gene? Yes, in the way of scientific explanation. How that comes about, who knows, but it's not for a scientist or indeed for anybody else to explain, I don't think, particularly. So that's why it was so exciting for people. They thought that, that this Darwinian idea that everything just proceeds by infinitesimal processes of minor adaptation and mutation explained everything, everything in the world, everything in the universe, everything in history, everything in prehistory, obviously. That's one point. But then the second point which you raise, and I think is much, much more exciting, really, and much more blatant is what you've called the moral approach to it all. Darwin admits that when he saw the light and came to believe in the particular process of evolution that he did come to believe in, the process of natural selection, he didn't do so as a result of studying all the barnacles and earthworms and birds and so on that he'd studied through 30 years of life. He did so by reading the work of an economist, the Reverend Thomas Malthus. In other words, it was it was Malthusian economics that persuaded him. Malthus not, is not scientific. Gets a much more tricky press these days, doesn't he? Well, Malthus wrote during the Napoleonic Wars, and this country, Great Britain, was under siege through the Napoleonic blockades, and the, the population was in grave danger of starving. And it was perfectly understandable that Malthus should have thought there's a limited amount of food in the world to eat, and obviously if the population goes up, there's only one thing they can do, which is start killing one another or dying of starvation. And if you fast forward to the Irish potato famine in the 1840s, you would think that was the classic demonstration of the truth of Malthus. In fact, in a much more sinister and horrible way, what it's a demonstration of is that the politicians at the time had all been converted to believing in Malthus and thinking that starvation was an inevitability. So is this a sort of worm in the apple? It is, and the and the, uh, the, the the famines in Ireland are really the most terrible indictment of Malthusian thought, because as we know, they had plenty of food in Ireland, which they were exporting. The landlords were exporting grain, and there were huge protests and very very violent scenes at all the Irish ports when the hungry were trying to stop the landlords, mainly English landlords, importing their grain, exporting their grain for for profit. But of course, Darwin belonged to this new social class, what we would call the upper middle class, I suppose, that much of the wealth had come, in his case, from trade. Josiah Wedgwood, the old potter, who was a very humble man in origin. And when you read Thackeray's book of snobs, you realise that that class was very, very touchy about where they'd all come from. Yes, they were all extremely clever people and they were all interrelated and they all, they all depended not on rents from land so much as the old rich used to do as just money out of money itself and consoles. They and knew... Like Darwin's father. Like Darwin's father, who was a kind of banker. And they knew, those of them who were sensitive enough to look out of the window when they went through a city street in the north of England or in Birmingham or in London, that most people in the world weren't as fortunate as themselves. And they knew that it was an appalling scandal and whether you, whether you read Rustian or... Mill or any of the great Victorian intellectuals, the great problem of the ever-growing, hungry, overworked masses was a moral disgrace. And the only way that the Victorian rich remained so rich was by keeping the poor poor. I don't want to sound too like Jeremy Corbyn, but it's true. <laughs> and um, 
Darwin, I think, was popular partly, as you say, because he provided a simple explanation for how things are, but he also provided a moral explanation for why it was all right for his class to be extremely rich, very, very comfortable, when the majority of people in Great Britain were having hell, particularly in the cities, but also the poverty-stricken agricultural labourers who were becoming poorer by the decade. And the answer was, it was the way nature is. It was the nature of things for the strong to beat the weak and for the weak to go to the wall. And there has been worked out, I mean, this business of altruism, which, as you say, there, there is some genetic work done on this. I mean, one of the, and I'm not a, at all a geneticist, but I, isn't it true that there is an account or a more sophisticated account that neo-Darwinians would seek to give to, you know, push back against your argument that if the unit of selection is the gene rather than the creature, you know, there's a sort of vulgar apprehension that it's about creatures fighting yes. against each other. And the Dawkins point is that actually altruistic behaviours work well to propagate genes even where they yes, there damage is, there is, and I think that to a certain creatures. extent Dawkins is right about that in the great quarrel he had with my namesake, no relation, E.O. Wilson. E.O. Wilson departed from belief in Dawkins's selfish gene because he said he'd been working all his life on ants and bees and things of that sort, and in order to survive, of course, they have to cooperate. And Dawkins slightly backtracked, actually. He had rather implied he had a much more simple Darwinian view that everything was struggle and fight, uh, and then said, no, no, he was talking about the genes. But, of course, once you're talking about selfish genes, you are personalising yeah, an impersonal an process. Image, yeah, it's a metaphor, rather. It's a metaphor. And I think it's very easy to extrapolate from the origin of species in particular. Certainly, a great many people did extrapolate it. The idea that selfishness is the norm. Human selfishness is just reflecting the way things are in nature. Yeah. Did and you ever read any of George Price's work, this nearly kind of forgotten character, who actually drew up a kind of mathematical... No, I didn't. Oh, it was something called a covariant of altruism or something. He found a way of demonstrating almost mathematically when creatures would cooperate and when they wouldn't, but then he sort of went mad. But certainly, behind. whether or not you, you blame Darwin, and I don't blame Darwin for the veracity with which this idea was taken up, particularly, alas, in Germany... And by the eugenics movement, about which we perhaps ought to speak for a brief spell, whether you blame him, he is responsible. He, he originated in his book, The Descent of Man, which is an absurd book. I mean, The Origin of Species is a brilliant book, even though I'm saying I don't believe in it. It is an absolutely brilliant book. And, it's, and it is a mind-changing book, even though you don't have to change your mind back again if you're trying to get near the truth. But it, and it was a pioneering book, whereas The Descent of Man, which he lifted half of it from Herbert Spencer a now forgotten philosopher, um, it is ludicrous because he tries to explain how language evolves, for example. And it's so full of elementary mistakes about linguistics and so forth that you just laugh aloud when you're reading it, really. But it ends up with this really rather nasty uh, reflection that the poor and the feckless, um, and he means the Irish, of course, must be in some way or another kept down or if not eliminated because... As that sort of starts to licence the eugenics... Exactly, and he says a programme must be found, which we now would call eugenics, and which his cousin, Francis Galton, immediately instituted. There were chairs of eugenics at London School of Economics and so on, and when Sidney Webb, founder of the New Statesman, your rival magazine, and a uh, man who helped to draft the constitution of the Labour Party, when that chair was established, 
Sidney Webb said the reason it was so important was that the Jews and the Irish were breeding in such numbers in the East End that unless they should be eliminated, uh, the race was going to be sullied. Great socialist. <laughs> <laughs> he was socialist and, of course, national socialist, but one doesn't make too much of that. One's an admirer of the Webbs. In terms of the way, I mean, I'd like to get back briefly to Darwin's character. Yeah, which I mean, is very interesting, and why it's one of the reasons I'm glad I've written it as a biography, not as uh, just as a, a tract. I mean, one of the things you light on is that he, he lost his mother when he was eight and a half, and he had rather a sort of irascible father. I mean, do you attribute the less attractive qualities in his character to that trauma? Well, I'm sure that if one were an analyst, one would realise that was where it all began. He had a very miserable childhood, but... Like a lot of the people in that class, he was entirely family-bound, partly because of this money thing that we've talked about. They were terrified of the money going out of the family. They weren't consciously terrified of it when they were children, obviously. But, uh, for instance, his wife, who was also his first cousin, um, as far as I know, had one friend when she was a girl with whom she used to teach at a Sunday school in Staffordshire. But otherwise, all her so-called friends were her relations. She didn't know anybody outside the family. And, and, how would and when Darwin knew he was going to get married, I mean, he, he drew up this famous list, which was rather good of reasons to get married and reasons not to get married. Yes, but, it's an episode uh, of Friends in which exactly the same thing happens. <laughs> exactly. I think they've lived they lived a bit from Darwin. Uh, they have, because one of the fr four friends is a paleontologist who often makes little Darwinian speeches yeah. to the others, if you remember. But, um, <laughs> um, and th that is directly lifted from, from Charles Darwin's letters or notebooks. There was no question of him marrying somebody outside the family. He was just going to marry one of the Wedgwood cousins or somebody else uh, in the family. And Which most modern Darwinians would tend to say is not a genetic strategy. Well, particularly when strategy. they were doing it two or three generations, of course. And he, he does make it clear that he's frightened, really, of the outside world. Certainly his wife was. They didn't really want to make friends outside the circle, the magic circle. And how did they get on? Um, it was a blissful and really good relationship. He used to call her Mammy. A lot of men called their, their wives Mum or Mother, I suppose. But uh, I think he did really think she was his long-lost mother. And rather disastrously, we, you know, he had this illness, which is a mystery illness. I think the most plausible explanation for why he felt sick half the time and was really lavatory and bedroom-bound most of his grown-up life was that he, ha he had lactose intolerance, and his wife, who was always trying to give him treats, made him these lovely creamy custards, and things, <laughs> which he loved. He was... I I've said harsh things about Darwin, both in this conversation and in the book, about a man who was driven by ambition and who was ruthless to his rivals and enemies. But as a family man, he was utterly charming. He was kind and polite to the family's servants, which not everybody was. He was much beloved by all, all of the children who survived. Probably the love of his life was poor little Annie, who died when she was 12. And it was a good relationship. Unlike some of the other Wedgwood relationships, there's a modern biographer called Hensley Wedgwood who says that the Darwin marriage was actually the only happy marriage in the entire family during the 19th century. So you didn't, in the process of writing a book, have quite the sort of Roger Lewis, Anthony Burgess experience of turning on your subject completely. Not at all. And I, and I realised, had I been his son or his cousin, I would have got on with him extremely well. Had I not been, I wouldn't have known him, because <laughs> he was a more or less a hermit. And after his youth, where he made his friends in Cambridge, scientists, most of whom, of course, to his great grief, didn't believe the theory. Partly because they were clergy, 
But it wasn't only that. They just weren't convinced by it. Lyle wasn't convinced by it. Huxley, who spent his whole life, Thomas Huxley... The president um, of the Royal Society was the great booster. He, was, he called himself Darwin's bulldog. He didn't believe in the gradual, gradual theory. He, was, he, was, he believed, before Eldridge and Gould made it clear, that he believed in punctuated equilibrium. He, he thought nature made leaps. If you go to a museum, you can see the leaps. Where are the, where are the missing links? There are some missing links. I shouldn't be too silly about this. There are, there are 10 or 12 missing links where you get mammalian reptiles or sort of fishy-looking mammals, or whatever it might be. But if Darwinism was true, the museums would be full of missing links. Well, You'd be digging them up all over the place. There'd be fossils of missing links. <laughs> Because, I mean, if it's, if it's what the Shaw generation thought it was, the explanation for absolutely everything, and if it was true of absolutely every f- form that we see in the living world, we would be surrounded by missing links. Now, if you had your, had your way, and, as I suspect, would like to see him sort of quietly removed from the £10 note, who would you put in his place? Well, haven't we got Jane Austen instead? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she has been, he has been removed, but not for dogmatic or scientific reasons. I think it was just they decided a woman was needed. I think it's rather a pity that they can't have a female scientist, somebody like Dorothy Hodgkin, or there have been a lot of good women scientists. I have to start a letter-writing campaign. Andrew (laughs) Wilson, thank you very much indeed.